helpless babies, dependent on others for comfort, food, and survival itself. And even though we develop a degree of mastery and independence, we always remain alarmingly weak and incomplete, dependent on others and on an uncertain world for whatever we are able to, to achieve. As we grow, we, de- we all develop a wide range of emotions responding to this predicament. Fear that bad things will happen and that we will be powerless to ward them off. Love for those who help and support us. Grief when a loved one is lost. Hope for good things in the future. Anger when someone else damages something we care about. Our emotional life maps our incompleteness. A creature without any needs would never have reasons for fear or grief or hope or anger. But for that very reason, we are often ashamed of our emotions and of the relations of need and dependency bound up with them. Our emotional life maps our incompleteness. This gesture of recognizing needs, this kind of foundational recognition of of needs is um, quite helpful insofar as it um, it begins to mitigate some of the shame that we actually have about our inner life. And the recognition of our, our like fundamental need is also uh, for me a kind of basis for our ethics sila that we are actually um, yeah small creatures who depend on each other mother teresa says uh, if we have no peace it is because we have forgotten that we belong to each other Now, normally, we talk about bringing mindfulness into our lives, right? We talk about bringing uh, kind of some element of choicefulness into uh, our lives, right? We're like, we're trying to remember to be mindful during the day, right? We've all played that game, yeah? Of like trying to remember. But how do you remember when you're forgetting, right? right? It's actually kind of the, the habit of, of remembering, the training of the heart-mind that reminds us. Yeah. And so over time, we actually elevate the baseline level of mindfulness, the, the kind of the the uh, level of mindfulness of equanimity that we have when we're not trying to be mindful that actually increases over time. But um, 
to me, it's actually less about uh, choosing mindfulness in a particular moment and more around the kind of momentum of our practice and not getting backed into those karmic corners from which there, the only escape is through suffering. Yeah. So to some extent, we're actually, like the Dharma is better at preventing fires than putting them out. Yeah. Like slowly conditioning our lives to not get backed into corners. And that happens through the kind of elevation of mindfulness over time, but it's not so choiceful. It's not so choiceful. And the truth is, for all that we talk about mindfulness here, um, I don't really care about it that much. Like, like, like I care about suffering. Yeah. I don't care about mindfulness. Uh, I, um, there, a friend of mine has a bumper sticker, and she says, "Like I break." for suffering, you know? And that, that, that's right, yeah? Like, that is actually what we care about, moment by moment. We actually care about that. So, what I'm pointing to is that um, I think maybe it's less about trying to consciously bring mindfulness into our into the world and that uh, the suggestion that I want to make is the way we really bring the practice most directly into the world is through our ethics through our sila this this increasing sensitivity that we have to the relations of dependency to how we impact each other, to the reverberations between hearts. A uh, Tibetan uh, teacher, uh, Bob Thurman, said, and he's kind of like chiding uh, maybe somebody uh, and saying like, you know, you folks, I think he was talking to an insight insight meditation teacher, he's kind of playfully teasing, he's like, you know, you, you folks always talk about practice, 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 when's, when's the concert, you know, right? And um, uh, I, what I would say is you could make a case that our, our ethical life, that's it, you know, that is what we're practicing for. So to actually bring ethics into our life uh, involves mindfulness and wisdom and love, everything we've talked about. There are strong connections between sila, this Pali word sila, our conduct, and mindfulness. Um, to be mindful of goodness brings a kind of love. 
and to be mindful of pain also brings a kind of love. And that symmetry is a kind of the miracle of mindfulness. That it actually amplifies goodness and weakens the forces of suffering. The more attuned we are to our hearts, the clearer our ethical behavior will be. So the, the more we actually attune, the more we can act, feel, it's like the karmic loop gets shortened. We actually, there's a certain kind of like feedback when we're out of alignment with our own uh, values that uh, is quite immediate. The more unified the mind gets, the deeper the love can be, the more it can feel uh, boundless. The more we start to see ourselves in others and others in ourselves, that actually becomes like the most Um, prominent kind of feature of the gaze that to actually look at another person and to to see oneself in them to see them in you our our ethics are kind of a um, a field guide to our mind They actually shine a kind of spotlight on where we cling. And I'd like to to identify the the kind of sights of clinging in myself. I only have to like listen to myself talk, you know? You just, it just conveys, like you can just hear where the mind is snagged. Now, uh, I want to be a little cautious because to, to talk about, um, to talk about sila, it often kind of activates certain egoic processes and we start kind of grading ourselves. um, you know, like, well, on this precept, I'm like B plus, <laughs> and on that one, uh, uh, you know, whatever. It's like, but it's a very self-referential kind of process and whatever, guilt. And, and instead the invitation is not not like how can we actually compound the narrative of me, yeah? But actually look what what kind of life actually expresses alignment with our own hearts. And this is a process that doesn't end as far as I can see. Yeah. Like there's no end to how beautiful the heart can be. Yeah. And uh, you're, you're feeling that. That's, that was, um, that is one of the kind of insights of, of retreat.
sort of sense of uh, some of the qualities of heart that are <clears throat> uh, obscured by busyness. Often at, at the end of retreat, uh, the thought arises that um, uh, if we were trying to start a cult, we would have run the retreat basically the same way. <laughs> we would have woken you up early and put you into silence and tell you to talk about your own deepest personal experience. Uh, every time doubt arises, we would have said, let go, you know, like, uh, right? And, um, but if we were actually doing that, at the end, we would pull a kind of bait and switch where we would say, uh, that the the goodness that you know in your heart is actually dependent on us, right? And that's the delusion. Yeah. It's only ever goodness resonating with goodness. Yeah. To the extent that we can see goodness in in anyone, it's a function of that resonance. So um, our ethics is uh, to a large extent like the ethics of non-clinging, the kind of qualities of heart that are left in the wake of letting go. Clinging and love, it, it get, they get tangled up for us. Sometimes clinging kind of masquerades as love. But clinging is always about uh, control. And love is about uh, generosity. Love is the, the kind of open, unclenched fist letting go. And so we start to actually distill these qualities of, of heart and mind out. And uh, there's a certain kind of trust that we have of what is left in the wake of letting go. What is left when we uh, fully metabolize the, the, the greed and the aversion. We don't have to manufacture goodness or joy or love in the wake of letting go. And this is our kind of, um, yeah, the foundation of our, of our sila. Gil Fransdahl said something like, um, I, enlightenment, 
enlightenment isn't when you get free, it's when you free everything else. There's a, uh, a debate sometimes between uh, kind of the virtues of the arhat or the bodhisattva. Yeah. So the arhat of this kind of like, you know, exquisite attunement to the subtlest, wispiest forms of suffering in oneself and uprooting these kind of forces of craving at their at their depths, you know, so that uh, it, it's not possible for for any kind of clinging to arise, right? And it's so it's like you're getting so deeply refined into like um, the cultivation, and then this this bodhisattva kind of where the dedication is to make one's life be of benefit for all beings, to save all beings, to, um, to, to live in kind of devotion to this vow of, of, um, of saving all beings. And um, Ajahn Sumedho, a monastic uh, who's been influential in this, this uh, scene, uh, Sumedho was asked one time by, uh, by a, a practitioner, like, which is the better path, the arahat or the bodhisattva? And uh, his response was, that kind of question is asked by people who understand absolutely nothing about Buddhism. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, I don't really understand what Samedo is saying there, but um, I think I think what is being pointed to is that um, it's a kind of false dichotomy in some way, and that uh, we're speaking to a kind of convergence between wisdom and love. And the truth is that, like, I'm not... Um, I, I no longer really trust the wisdom, the insight that does not catalyze love. Yeah. If it if it does not lead us into a kind of ordinary goodness and non-harmfulness, what what is its value exactly? Yeah. Now the. The Dharma and its kind of ethics, it's not meant to to solve every moral conundrum or problem, right? Like in in philosophy, in moral philosophy, there are like these complex kind of questions of, of uh, you know, what would you do? You're on a trolley and the trolley is you know, heading towards is going to kill five people. And if you pull the switch, it goes to the other track, but then you kill the that one person. But the train really wasn't going to go there unless you pull it. And what, you know, and then like, talk about that for a while, you know, like. And um, uh, Dharma's not going to help with that stuff, you know. It's really not. But the truth is, most moral questions not tricky, right? It's not so complex, yeah? Now, typically we, we associate morality with, uh, 
with strong views and certainty. But uh, in my my experience, the kind of approach of not knowing is very important as we cultivate and refine our ethical lives. Often, uh, we get kind of fundamentalist about our ethics, where we are clinging kind of masquerades as as knowing and many of our our views if we really look they're actually born of a certain kind of fear or greed and the work of delusion is to rationalize greed and hatred that's like how it operates. It ra- you know, Wes has said, like, we're not so much rational animals, we're rationalizing animals. Yeah. And so we can actually, if, unless we really unpack the way we build our worlds, the way we build our knowing, greed and hatred can be the kind of... Um, unseen building blocks in the construction of views. And so, um, it's not knowing, not knowing, which is a kind of a core capacity in our spiritual practice to be untethered from the normal uh, reference points. Too much knowing, in other words, can be problematic. This is a, a researcher who, uh, who studies overconfidence. Um, it's actually like a whole body of research on this. Uh, so overconfidence is the mother of all psychological biases. It is one of the largest and most ubiquitous of the many biases to, to which human judgment is vulnerable. For example, 93% of American drivers claim to be better than the median. Yeah. If we were appropriately humble about psychological vulnerabilities, we'd be better able to protect ourselves from the errors to which human nature makes us prone. They go on to say, if overconfidence can get us into some tru- so much trouble, it seems to follow that we should reduce it. But how much? Should we completely minimize confidence? That's a recipe for perpetual doubt and inaction. If you instead turn to self-help books for guidance, you might be tempted to come away with the opposite conclusion. The challenge is keeping your confidence up. These books come with exciting titles like You Are a Badass, How to Stop Doubting Your Greatness and Start Living an Awesome Life. Books like these make greater confidence sound awfully inviting, but surely the right answer is not that we should be maximally confident. There is another way, a middle way, between too much and not enough. This middle way is not the path to mediocrity, far from it. It is exceptionally rare to be well calibrated in one's confidence. It requires that you understand yourself, that you know your limitations and what opportunities are not worth pursuing. 
requires that you act confidently based on what you know, even if it means taking a stand. But it also means that requires the willingness to consider the possibility that you are wrong, to listen to evidence, and to change your mind. This is a rare combination of courage and intellectual humility, which leads to actively open-minded thinking. It takes just the right amount of confidence. So, sila, or sila, we are training in embodying freedom, in embodying non-clinging, embodying letting go. In, in attuning to the impacts of, of our, our lives on others. Now, um, some obstructions to this refinement. So I'm alluding to this already, that this sense of, of clinging to views, the ways in which views get imbued with a certain kind of egoic investment. And maybe you know that moment uh, at the end of maybe a quiet sitting when the bell rings and you open your eyes and there's, yeah, there's a kind of, uh, there's no need to believe anything there's no need to prove anything. There's no need to announce, convince, persuade anything. There's almost no need to even take up a view at all, right? We know that, that kind of the softness of that moment. But of course, it's not, not always like that, yeah? There's like... A lot of times it feels like um, uh, with things that we feel passionately about with our ethical life, it's like we, we feel like the more kind of forceful we are, the, the clearer our commitment is or something, but it's complicated. So what I suggest is actually we're, we're afraid that if we let go that it's going to undercut the force of our views or something or, or the force of our values but what I would say is that actually it's, it's um, the more deeply we can let go the more morally persuasive we are the more morally persuasive we are. We refine our ethical life by being open to feedback, being a kind of open system. And in an important way, our whole Dharma life is about taking feedback in the sense of we're living and 
looking, what are the impacts of living in this way? What are the impacts of organizing my life in this way? What are the impacts of acting out these impulses or not these? And so there's this kind of, we're awake to what is happening, to cause and effect in our life. And um, this is important because the world and other people will give us feedback. Yeah. And we depend on that in a deep way because we can never have a 360 degree view of our own self. There's always something of ourselves that is transparent to ourselves. And so we actually rely on, on others in this way. And in developing our kind of uh, ethical life, this feedback is, is so, um, it's so important. It helps us to see, feedback helps us to see the, the architecture of our self-view. Feedback helps us see actually the way we build the self. So, um, some some kinds of of heart disease they um, uh, you kind of can't you know doctors can't assess them when the heart is at rest. You actually need to exercise and like uh, you know do a stressed cardiac stress test to actually get the heart moving and then assess the blood flow and electrical activity of the heart and um, with self-view sometimes we have to like we actually have to stimulate the self in order to really see the nature of our clinging, the self-views where we're actually caught. And feedback is a mechanism for this. Yeah. Feedback is actually a way that we can shine a light on the kind of the way, the, the places of clinging in how we define ourselves and what we think makes us of value. And so the remarkable point is that this actually works whether the feedback is on target or off base. Yeah. That's actually immaterial. It doesn't even matter. Right? Normally it's like we think, oh, this feedback is is on, okay, I have to own that, right? But that's wrong, and I can refuse it, right? And it may be wrong, but it doesn't matter. Because if it stings, it's highlighting a certain kind of fragility, a certain kind of clinging in cell. Yeah. That, that makes sense? To the extent that we become defensive and need to refuse that, it doesn't actually matter whether it's right or wrong. It's, it's a kind of, 
way, a, a, a way of understanding ourselves more deeply. And to the extent that that any self-definition has emotional sting, to that extent our behavior can be distorted. That when we're actually privileging this way of curating the self, our actual work it becomes compromise so like if i'm if i'm intent on on being seen as a as a as a good meditation teacher yeah if that actually becomes like a, a that if that gets prioritized then it actually displaces the work which is to be of some use to be useful right and so we, we want to actually look at the ways in which the kind of um, way we perform and reinforce the sense of self actually compromises our, the freedom and effectiveness of us in the world. And uh, feedback is, is quite, quite critical in this development. Now to, to do this, we, we need to tolerate some measure of disorientation. Um, part of why our, yeah, it's our defensiveness makes it, it kind of hampers our ethical evolution. And um, the defensiveness arises when we're like not able to tolerate the disorientation of the the cage of self being rattled. When the cage of self gets rattled, it's like we just do almost anything to get back to familiar ground. Like when when that ground is undercut, it's like it ignites such strong feelings because we have this moment of kind of free fall when the person we thought we were all of a sudden becomes suspect, and we're kind of deliberating: Is that who I am? Am I am I who you're telling me I am? Am I who I think I am? And in that gap, there is this kind of like, yeah, this free fall. And then in order to reestablish that sense of, of safety, of familiar ground, it, we mobilize a lot of anger or defensiveness to say, no, 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 you don't know me. And the invitation in, in practicing with this is actually to become more tolerant of that free fall. To just kind of hang with that even though it feels very alien. And so, um, 
we we commit to to evolving ethically. It's a kind of sense of, um, yeah, it's bound up, our ethical life is bound up with the rest of our practice, with the depths to which we settle, with the capacities of wisdom. Ajahn Chah said, sila samadhi panya, one thing, one fruit different aspects of the same fruit. And this takes, um, I think, a lot, of, a lot of courage. It's, it's courageous, I think, to, um, to try to grow ethically. You know, I, what I notice in myself is that I want to think of myself as a good person and I don't want to change my behavior. It's kind of a bind, you know. Um, so, so there's a, a, a way in which I feel like I feel... Um, it's my responsibility to be awake, sensitive to the places of, of moral incoherence in me. The places where I cannot justify my life. When I was, um, when I was in college and I read this, this book, um, that was um, basically making the argument that uh, in wealth, you know, in wealthy nations, the um, the kind of goodness that a hundred dollars accomplishes is just almost zero in comparison to the amount of goodness that can be done for the most vulnerable populations in the world. And um, and through a kind of very careful argument argumentation, like I got to this place where it was just like I just had to look at you know my life and what you know what I spent money on or something, and and then what how what that hundred dollars could do in a distant place where the suffering was incredibly intense. And I came to this kind of place of, of a sense of moral incoherence. Yeah. Like I could actually no longer justify my life. You know, the trivial amount of pleasure that I, that, you know, a hundred dollars would buy a college student. Yeah. And, uh, and, that that's a, an uncomfortable place. It's happening. It's it keeps happening. I like keep waking up to these places where I cannot justify my life, and I am trying to ask honest questions. 
and not make assumptions about the answer, but it, it's questions about like, what is mine? How much do I owe to the welfare of others? What do I owe to animals? What do I owe to future generations? What do I owe to the most vulnerable on this planet? And, um, you know, it kind of occurred to me, like, like the, the, the saint is extremely rare. I think about Martin Luther King, or, like, the saint is extremely rare, and I'm, I am no saint. But the question arose, like, is anything less ethically justifiable? Just because the saint is extremely rare does not mean our sila asks less. Havel, Havel said, um, hope is not the conviction that something will turn out well, but the certainty that something makes sense regardless of how it turns out. What, what are the implications of the silence for our ethical life? Can we stay alive to the questions in a way that's not shaming or... but attunes us more and more deeply to this the foundation of Dharma, uh, which is uh, that that our lives be of benefit, yeah. that we not harm ourselves, we not harm others. It's a time for radical hearts. the collective level, it's a time for radical hearts. And we find the whole of the Dharma there. It's all there. said for a moment.
the last album of his life, uh, Leonard Cohen sang, I wish there was a treaty we could sign. I do not care who takes this bloody hill. I'm angry and I'm tired all the time. I wish there was a treaty. I wish there was a treaty between your love and mine.